the reason we have that title in films about like this has no resemblance to to anyone is because one of the guys that stabbed Rasputin sued MGM because it depicted his wife as fucking Rasputin in uh, an early 30s film and this guy sued in English court do you know this story Ryan? (laughs) I no I did not oh my god yeah so there's like an early 30s MGM film that's about the Russian Revolution and one of the guys who killed Rasputin, of course, escaped Russia and was living in Europe and, and sued MGM because he was like, my wife did not have sex with Rasputin. And it, he was not disputing that he murdered a man as depicted in the film. He <laughs> right. was suing on the grounds that his wife didn't fuck Rasputin. Yeah. And that's the reason that we have that disclaimer. That's literally when that started because it was settled in oh UK courts. God. They got paid out huge. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis. And with me, as always, are Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. Oh, hell yeah. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which uh, one of your hosts selects a topic and the other two hosts are tasked with selecting films that challenge the topic, meet the topic, and we bring them to the table and we have it out. We discuss them, weigh them, measure them. It was my turn this week. I was up. And for my topic, I chose Missing Persons. I was... You know, really enraptured, as as basic as it might be of me, I was really enraptured with the the Gabby Petito uh, disappearance, and then of course, you know, finding, I guess, discovery, and then of course, the second disappearance associated with the case, her her boyfriend Brian Laundry, who uh, <laughs> has one of the most hilarious names, I think, and then he disappeared, and then there was all this drama, and then of course, well, he was discovered as well. So rip in peace uh, to both of them, but it led me to a topic that obviously I've been very interested in. I, I sort of discovered, I, I realized, wow, I've, I get I get really into missing persons cases. So I think cinema is um, is ripe. Uh, or I should say this topic is one that that um, particularly, I think, has a, has a long, rich history of, you know, various kind of approaches to this to the subject matter. So that's what I selected for this week. Missing persons. So, boys, what did you bring to the table? Marsh, why don't you tell us about the film you chose? So I chose a film that I had never seen before, although I was, of course, familiar with its director, Costa Gavras. And when I, uh, you know, was thinking about what to pick, I thought the idea of Jack Lemmon discovering Pinochet seemed very appealing to me. I don't know why, but uh, that led me to 
Missing from 1982. And this film is, like so many of Costa Gavras's films, an adaptation. And in particular, an adaptation of a 1978 book titled The Execution of Charles Horman an American sacrifice, which is, of course, the true story of what happened to Charles Horman, which is uh, he was a young American living in Chile during the Allende years, and uh, he was there when the coup happened, and he was there uh, when they took him away. And uh, that's essentially what the film is. It's a, a retelling of this incident, but there are some key distinctions between the film and the real-life event and so on and so forth. Namely, of course, like in his film Z, Costa Gavras does not name the country that we are witnessing this unfold in, although it is obviously and explicitly Chile, and he doesn't give it a year either. Although, of course, we know that it's 1973, but the film uh, does not acknowledge that. And, and those are interesting things that we can talk about. But essentially, the first 30 minutes of the film were introduced to Charles and his wife, Beth, played by Sissy Spacek, as already something is, is off. The vibes are off in this Latin American country <laughs> as, you know, we see tanks and soldiers and there's just that classic air of uh, paranoia that you get in a Costa Gavras film and the Vangelis synthesizers are pulsating away and you're like, this is, you know, this isn't good. And sure enough, you know, at a certain point, Charles has disappeared. Uh, why? By whom? We're not sure, but we have a pretty good idea of maybe what's going on here. And so the film really kicks into gear when Charles's dad, Ed, played by Jack Lemmon, finds him, or rather makes his way uh, down to find out what happened to his son. And that's uh, that's missing. It's uh, an investigation into the missing son, but I would also say it's a investigation into some other things missing, perhaps, in Ed's life and his view of the world, perhaps. So that's what I picked. Missing. Beautiful. Ryan... What about you? What did you bring to the table? So you both know how I'm particularly fond of films I would myself describe as missing films. Films that have sort of fallen through the cracks or, or a little less well known. And based off of the types of films that I have selected sometimes on the gauntlet, that is sort of like a recurring theme, I think, with my own search for these missing films. I feel like I myself am on a quest uh, seeking out missing persons, missing cinemas, uh, just to see whatever the hell I can find, right? So I found this film that I had never heard of before from 1977 called Summerfield, and it comes from way down under in the southeastern corner of Australia, shot uh, in the state of Victoria. And, you know, it as an Australian thriller from 1977, if that means anything to anybody, you probably get a sense of what this movie is like. It kind of has this laid-back Australian vibe. It kind of, like, is soaked in a bit of lethargy, but then because of that, there's an aura of... Uh, maybe not paranoia in the sense of what we were talking about with Costa Gavras, but uh, there's a sense of an enigmatic 
offness, I guess, is kind of like a grotesque way of putting it uh, with those words popped together. So Summerfield tells the story of a new school teacher arriving to a small town in the state of Victoria, and his name is Simon Robinson. And Simon is on his way to replace a fellow school teacher who has gone missing, or at least he is under the impression that he has gone missing. It doesn't seem as if the town really seems to feel that that is what happened. The town suggests that, oh, people come and go, we're used to this sort of thing, but he just senses something's off, and that's sort of the line the film treads throughout on his own quest, trying to make sense of this town and the man he's replacing. But it does seem to be a classic case of someone looking for the uh, wrong thing in the right places or just asking the wrong questions uh, in the right places, etc. Et <laughs> but, but Simon, as he, as he starts teaching in this small town, uh, when he first arrives, he encounters a young girl named um, Sally who gives him another great opening line. She tells him, you've come the wrong way and thus sets us on our own path of thinking that, you know, perhaps we have come the wrong way and we have veered off into some odd territory here in Australia. And the event that kind of triggers the, the drama of the film is he goes to visit Sally on her own island that she lives called Summerfield. It's an island that is off of a long bridge, has a big gate in the middle, and it's uh, inaccessible from, by the general public. And on his way there, he accidentally hits her with his car while she's riding her bicycle and it breaks her leg. And then what follows is him sort of becoming involved a little too closely with this odd, enigmatic, secluded family as he starts to learn about strange family histories, about hereditary blood diseases amongst them all. And it leads him further and closer to his own quest as to figuring out what happened to the missing teacher that preceded him. It's an odd little nugget of treasure from, from Australia. I had a good time, but it's, um, it's a curious thing, and I'm excited to sort of hash it out with both of you, but that is Summerfield from 1977. Oh, worth pointing out as well, uh, that I can't believe I've forgotten, is that it's written and produced by two people who also worked on Picnic at Hanging Rock, another iconic missing persons film from way down under. Uh, so funny that there's that little rhyme there with the production team. I uh, I tweeted that I was watching Summerfield and uh, no one responded except one person who said, uh, it's got sh short shorts and generational trauma. It's an Australian classic. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of short shorts on display in, in this title. That, mm -hmm. that is without a doubt. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I think even in picking the topic for me, you know, I really was reflecting on how, you know, cinema was like made for investigations, really. You know, like it is just so, uh, so rich in terms of what it provides for the idea of, you know, stories that move, narratives that move. And even if, you know, it isn't moving quickly, uh, there is still this sense of, of progression that we get. This, this compels us to move from, from one scene to the next, you know, one discovery to the next, building, of course, into this, this question of, will they, won't they find the person? But it also struck me, again, while I was watching both of these films, uh, that, 
I think it was putting both of these films back to back and really like measuring up against the, the, the topic and really reflecting upon it, you know, outside of the idea of, you know, mystery and how, you know, it's just, it's, it's perfect for, yeah, like the progression of, of events and, and characters and details that missing persons films often are more about the person searching than they are about the person to be found, right? Oh, yeah. And and again, it really struck me with both of these films because a departure between the two, I would, I would say, is that, you know, in one film, in the case of Summerfield, we know almost nothing about the man that is being sought, the man that might have disappeared, right? Mm -hmm. This guy, Flynn, right? Isn't that his name? Mr. Yes. Flynn, the previous teacher. We know absolutely nothing about him. Uh, and as the film progresses, we really don't come to learn that much about him through this through this investigation, this search. And then in the other case, in Missing, I mean, that person is so actualized, so actualized. We know so much about him. And, and we learn a lot through the course of the film. Like, yeah, we I know mean, him intimately. Intimately is a great word for it. And yet, like, in, in spite of that difference, that departure... The, the similarity, again, being that both of these films are really about the people that are searching. The right? searchers. The searchers, yes. <laughs> Absolutely, the searchers. And I just kind of think it's a, it's a really interesting thing to, to, to enter into, I guess, in terms of looking at these films from that perspective, especially you know, in the case of Missing. Because as you said, Marsh, in your beautiful introduction, you know, as much as Missing is about Charlie Horman, it's really about Ed, his dad. It's really about Jack Lemon, and Jack Lemon being a surrogate for, you know, I hope I'm not bearing the lead here, but being a surrogate for America and like American innocence or naivete, I guess might be a little bit more of a precise word to use, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that both of them are, Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemon. Um, in a sense, the film is more about America than it is about Chile, and it's about, you know, America's own crimes and interfering with other countries and then like that sort of being unearthed from the perspective of both a leftist radical here represented by Sissy Spacek and then the conservative American who has ideals about law and order and the way justice is sought and followed through with in like any arena. During their quest that is the main tension between the two of them with Sissy Spacek and just like constant doubt about anything any officials are sharing with them and Jack Lemon, who is certain that, oh, well, as long as we follow this by the book, there is this hope that I will encounter my, my son again. And it's really interesting. I like, I, this is uh, an error on my end, but just the, I didn't realize, Marsh, until you pointed it out that the film never explicitly mentions that it's chilly or what year it's occurring. Um, I just, because I think I went in just always knowing that this was the, you know, Costa Gavras film about Chile and about the coup and was based off a, a real life incident and the book. I sort of just went in assuming the entire time that like, oh, of course, it's like the, the, the film is drawing attention to that. And I mean, it is in a way, as you said, it, it doesn't explicitly say it while it is also explicitly saying it because the film is, is shot in Mexico City, but throughout there are lots of mentions of Chile on 
signs. You never, I don't think you see a flag now that I'm thinking about it. And whenever they're mentioning like consulates or the government, it's all, it's all very vague. But there are some explicit references of like Chile on display. I feel like I should also clarify the fact that I don't want it to make it seem like I missed the, you know, opening remarks of the film when it does tell you that names have been changed both to protect the innocent and to protect the film. But it just didn't click for me that literally they don't mention the fact that it's Chile. I just assumed they were covering their asses in terms of talking about journalists in America. <laughs> well, the sta- I think the stadium is the biggest giveaway, at least from like what anyone knows about the Chilean coup. They they know about the stadium, you know. So that alone is like such a big signifier of being like, yeah, this is this, you know. And I think they do. I think they name drop Santiago like towards the end. Yeah. But really, there's not much. Yeah. There was also like a single reference that confused me, uh, and now it makes more sense knowing that it's not very literally Chile, and that's where someone says. I think it's one of the officials who just says like, oh, I've liked working in this little country. And I was like, little country? Chile is huge. It's like one of the longest countries. It's so tall. (laughs) Every country's little uh, when you're looking at it through the eyes of the American uh, imperial leaders, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think that whole sort of vagueness, you know, it it speaks to what I think Costa Gavras thinks he's doing uh, with the film, which is uh, to, you know, if you, uh, like, I I read some interviews and he brushes off, like, I don't make historical films. I don't make historical films, right? And what does he mean by that when all his films are based on historical events? Well, essentially, like, from what I gather, right, he means... Yeah, to actualize this is to say it happened in the past. And to say that American imperialism and torture and Latin American interference is a thing of the past would be a a criminal offense. Even to bracket it as something that happened 10 years ago Mm -hmm. when it's still happening, that's like his issue with the difference between him going like, I make fiction, I make political thrillers, I don't make historical films, is because for him... Right. It's all about that political aspect. Right. And and convincing his audiences to uh, wake up sheeple, you right. know, as so many of his films are these sort of like, you know, the whole point of them is just like, open your eyes, you know. Right. I mean, Marsh, I, I think that's like a really interesting, um, a really interesting avenue uh, that you then bring up, you know, especially in in thinking about Costa Gavras. And I, I think that's just so so fascinating. And I think your like interpretation of that uh, is is just really like, uh, I mean, wow, it's got me a little like, wow, now my brain is just spinning. But like, I mean, seriously, like the idea of him saying like, oh, I don't make historical films. And then, you know, that it's it's because the idea of calling it historical, yes, implies that, you know, it's all over and done with. And, and yet it's not. I mean, it's so clear that, yes, he is in his own ways trying to talk about what's happening in the moment, like now, today, 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 and not just today, but tomorrow, you know, how do we, how do we maybe break these cycles, break these chains? And what's interesting is even as you bring up Brian, that it opens with this whole thing of him like, Oh, you know, names have been changed to protect the innocent. It's, it's interesting when you think about that compared to like Z, which I think is, you know, one of my favorite films. I love Z and how Z ends with a title card, if I'm not mistaken, where he says, like, any uh, any similarity to people living 
or dead is entirely intentional. You know, and he comes right out Mm -hmm. and says it, you know, these fucking Greek colonels, like they're there right now. They, and yes, they did this, but it doesn't matter that they did this because they're doing this and look what else they've done and will continue to do. So it is when you put it in that regard, like, yes, it is so much about these acts which continue to go on. And in spite of like the mission of this film, you know, the the other discovery that I think you're talking about, the, the intention of breaking those cycles, of of waking up the sheeple, you know? And it, it struck me again just how angry his movies can make me, you know? How, how mad I can get when I'm watching these films and I'm seeing all of this stuff unfold. And I think this is... Uh, as far as like it being a like a, a moving story too about people and a political thriller, like it is also rewatching because I had seen this before, an incredibly angry movie and and with each bit of evidence that Jack Lemon sort of uncovers in his own personal journey, like it just makes you more and more sick to your stomach. Yeah, I mean, if the film is gonna get a conservative American that angry at his government and the systems and that were put in place by his government, it's it's only natural that a couple of guys like us would get pretty fed up too <laughs> in terms of the, the rage buried within this film. I do think there's something interesting about this film in, in relationship to Costa Gavras's sort of like the, the public perception of him, which, you know, I've read a lot of, you know, sort of like, he oh, he's a filmmaker who sort of like preaches to you know, the already sort of like sympathetic people who are sympathetic to him. Preaching to the choir. Yeah. He's like Mm -hmm. preaching to the choir. And then you watch a film like missing and he is absolutely not preaching to the choir. And, and it's almost like as someone who, who would normally be that choir, you know, like, you know, you want to get me mad. Yeah. We'll talk about, you know, 1973. The film is, is yes. As you pointed out, Andy, it is aimed squarely at what Costa Gavras thinks is the average American, the conservative American. Right. And I think it's crucial too that like, we don't even actually see the Jack Lemon character, Ed, like even be like, converted into anything but you know we see his recognition and increasing anger and that registers on on a very deep emotional level but yeah so it's so it's interesting in that like yeah to me it's very much like he's definitely not preaching to the choir here he's like trying to directly reach uh an american audience and of course this i believe was his first full-blown sort of Hollywood production, unless I'm mistaken, and it might be his second. But at any rate, that's what he's going for, you know? So, like, on the Mm -hmm. one hand, you know, this watching it, it's sort of like, well, as far as missing persons go, like, I know what happened to this guy, you (laughs) know? So, like, it's not, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work on that level if you're familiar at all with uh, what's going on. But I think it's important to point out too, hey, like what what year is it, right? At the time this movie came out, like all of that information was classified. It wasn't even until the late 1990s that during the like the late Clinton administration that the Chile documents were declassified anyway. This is a period, of course, when everyone is still in denial of the U.S. involvement, as well as, yeah, like even the Chilean courts didn't, you know, rule on this case until I think like 2014 when they, you know, like whatever, charged guys or, for, you know, formally for this specific 
murder, you know? Like, so again, yeah, like seeing it in 1982, seeing it now, like obviously totally different kind of experiences with so much that's like happened in between. So Uh like to me, the film was like, it was like Citizen Kane. It was like filling in the pieces of someone's life, you know? Like, and that's to me what like the construction of missing in this film was like, it's Ed going like, I didn't know my son at all. Right. And then we're treated to his drawings, his poetry, his filmmaking mm-hmm. or whatever, as we see mm-hmm. a little, you know, uh, eight millimeter stuff in the film. But we actually, you know, as Ed learns about his son, we learn about him because again, as the movie starts, we're thrown into it. We don't know anything about these people. All we can surmise is that, you know, Beth and, and Charlie are, Liberals, leftists, sympathetic to the quote-unquote Allende experiment. And they're down there. They're, you know, trying to make this dream a reality. And they're not even really radicals, as is pointed out later by a real Chilean radical Mm -hmm. who says, (laughs) hey, he was a political neophyte, you know? Yeah. You know, good heart, but wasn't really, you know, that dedicated. Right. So there's a great moment in the film that I thought was like so just, you know, to this day, so indicative of 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 our country. Right. When Ed says, uh, before we get started, I have to ask you a question. I want you to answer me absolutely honestly. Okay. What did he do? What? What stupid thing did Charles do to cause his arrest or make him go into hiding? (laughs) You know, the most naive. Right. Oh, God. And I mean, without jumping too far ahead, he is like holding on to that idea even by the end of the film. Once he's convinced that the American officials have themselves committed a crime in covering up the murder of his son. Right. He, you know, we're left with him holding on to those ideals and thinking, well, I'm glad I live in a country where we can still put people like you in jail and i think that's key when you were talking about how one of the reasons this film is so moving is because it's not this sort of fantasy production where an american conservative just becomes radicalized in his search for his son like he himself hasn't changed at his core his like core value system and beliefs however it has been shaken uh and so he like lashes out the only way he can and yeah it is that journey throughout the film that isn't this like kind of hyper fictionalized like transition of like it feels more grounded i guess i would say um of Mm -hmm. what like that journey might actually be like for an individual like him or anybody and i think you bring up a good point marsh because you know it is kind of established early on uh and i had forgotten this because when i was i was recalling it because i had seen this film like years ago when i first discovered costa gavras and then was like that's the filmmaker I want to be. Like I, I, you know, young, <laughs> very political me. It was just like, this is perfect cinema, you know? Yeah. That I was like, oh yeah, he's a journalist and he's, he's investigating and blah, blah, blah. And then when I was rewatching it, I was like, he's not a fucking journalist. Like he's just some guy who accidentally stumbled into the coup, like, and discovering these certain elements. And that's when he just starts writing down notes and he kind of accidentally learns too much, you know? And that's like what, what puts him in trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, ultimately, you know, is just this sort of like his own kind of discovery. You know, he wasn't like on the case. It was all just sort of like 
thrust on him. Yeah, next thing you know, you're at like a weird CIA barbecue. <laughs> oh, you yeah, know? dude, I loved it. And that's great because, yeah, when he is like sort of accidentally swept up in the coup and he meets, you know, Babcock, that that weird Navy, uh, you know, the intelligence operator. guy. Right, the operator Babcock. Babcock uh, you know, and he gets invited, yeah, to this CIA barbecue. And there's just this amazing line because everyone is is like just just unloading on him and like explaining their involvement in the coup and like how they're really excited about it <laughs> you know that all these american officers and their families and and guys in uniform and and everyone's just like sharing with him like openly no one's guarding any secrets because he says like they saw me as an american and they just assumed that all Americans are on the same team. You know, there's like a line yeah. like that, something like that. But yeah, you know, he just kind of like stumbles into all this. So it's also, it is also a liberal discovery for, for what that's worth, you know, because mm-hmm. on the journey to try to find Charlie, you have Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemon, and they are, they are America. They are the left and the right. They are Republicans and Democrats. And the generational divide. Right. And the generational mm-hmm. divide. Right. But, but yeah, you know, like, you know, Kosagavers is sort of presenting like both sides of the same coin here in in their, you know, their discovery, their 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 knowledge of these things. And, you know, on the one hand, you have Jack Lemon, who is constantly trying to say, like, no, no, no. And her being like, come on, like, yes, yeah, something <laughs> like that. There is something here. And they have these great like moments where they are like butting heads. And, and he has this beautiful shot of a point when they go to the hotel and they're, they, they have rooms that are like across from one another. And they, the, it's just framed in this beautiful way, you know, where there's the left side of the frame and the right side of the frame. Uh, and they, they are like butting heads and they both just like, enough! Then they storm and they go off into their rooms. And again, I was just like, this is America. Like, mm-hmm. here's this thing and we're arguing over, over you know, the minutiae. We're arguing over the, the most like pointless details. And meanwhile... There's just gunfire everywhere. There's people being shot in the streets. There's all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the really telling part is like at the beginning in the hotel when they first, you know, they like Ed first gets down there and they sort of settle in and they just argue immediately. And Ed says, I can tell you getting in such a mess that I have to fly 16 hours in order to. Sometimes I honestly think that that boy is incapable of doing anything. Yeah. And again, yeah, this aggrieved, you know, like white American. Yeah. His son has been disappeared by Pinochet and he's complaining about how long the flight was. Yeah. Miserable. You know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I think and then it's like in moments like those where I was like, oh, this is such a good use of Jack Lemon. Because I can't remember if I have uh said this on the pod before. <laughs> oh, you I know have. we've was it on the pod? Okay. Oh, yes, it was. Okay, uh-huh. yeah, because I like hate Jack Lemmon. However, I really did love him in this, and I think that the way he's used is like uh, pretty inspired, uh, specifically in that sense. I'm like, oh, yeah, like Jack Lemmon would be complaining about the fucking flight yes. for 16 hours, you know? Like, yeah, yeah that stuff is so good. Um, I was so thrilled, like, when Marsh picked this movie so that I could come back at you and be like, Take it back. Like he yeah. he he just has to be deployed well, you know? Right? Like sure. and I get what you mean about see, Jack Lemon, yeah. but like it is such a brilliant uh it is such a brilliant casting choice, you know, because mm-hmm. Jack Lemon, you know, he does like embody in his 
physicality in his in his way that he can just you know deliver those kinds of lines marsh and be everybody's dad suddenly like he is like and just a symbol of the the boomer generation of america right. or whatever you know like that that the greatest generation i guess he would be probably yeah because yeah, i'm not trying to undermine it but it does sort of feel like stunt casting in that sense but it's like intelligent stunt casting it's bringing someone with all that baggage with them onto yeah. the screen to play that role Role. He represents like this very corny kind of idea of like American civility and respect mm-hmm. for authority. Like he just he just personifies that so well. And I think that's partly why, you know, his journey in this film, like it, it's I think even that much more powerful, you mm-hmm. know, that that we see, like you said, not that he's had like a total sea change, like he's not going to uh-huh. vote Democratic in the next election. Right. <laughs> but it's like he's he's never going to look at the flag the same way again. No. You know, I think that's yeah. like where, where it comes down to. It was it was very early on when I was like completely convinced. And again, like I, I have my issues with Jack Lemon, but I did not. I like going into this, I assumed I'm like, OK, this is this will probably be rather interesting the way they, they use him in this. But I was like I was fully on board uh, in a great moment early on when he does. He like arrives in the airport and it's like the bumbling Jack Lemon and he just like bumps into a soldier with an assault rifle mm. and i was like oh this is brilliant we've got you know clumsy jack lemon of the odd couple you know or the apartment and here he is he just rubs shoulders with like, <laughs> the fucking military like i'm like the, yeah. you know it was just it was, it was a shot like that where like you felt the weight of jack lemon like arriving into a coup you know yes. and again like he as he moves through this film like Again, he he. I think I, I'm I'm giving him a lot of credit here because I think I do like Jack Lemmon and I do consider him like a, a great performer, uh-huh. and a very a very smart actor as well. And I think he he very much gets like what he is supposed to what he's supposed to be, what his role yeah. is. Flinching all the time. Yeah, you know? and, and the, yeah, <laughs> the way the way he moves through the space, the way he reacts to the sounds of the city, the sounds of the coup, the sounds of the terror, right? And just you know the fact that like. Everyone around him is is constantly like trying to like lecture him on how he moves on the the space that he's occupying. That's like this ain't fucking America. He keeps like, trying to go for a walk, and everyone just keeps being like, "They will shoot you. You <laughs> cannot go for a walk. Yeah. Like there's curfew. <laughs> there's martial law. Yeah. Like this isn't a joke, yeah. white man. You know, like yeah. What he, are you doing? He, he yells at those like the fucking like secret police that like bang into their car or whatever. You know, and he's just like, "What the heck do you think you're doing?" And they're just like, "Don't." Or they have a 50 cal, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think like he totally gets it. And I, I, the physicality of his performance, I think was particularly for me, like special rewatching this film and just being like, oh my God, he's just, he's, he's such a fucking, like, he's just such a dope and I love it, you know, because that really is what America is like that. That is America's foreign relations. We are just banging around into other countries, you know, and then sort of looking at them and being like, watch where you're going. <laughs> you know, yeah. and yet it's him swinging his dumb suitcase around or opening his door at the wrong moment, you know? Mm-hmm. 
there is like a but speaking on that like dopey quality there is also it's also rather moving how desperate that dopey quality comes to be throughout the film um because there is like this implicit argument about how you would have to be a dope in order to believe all the things that these officials are telling him uh when they're making it clear like oh well we've like searched these places or these this is like a bit of intel we have um there is like this idea that it's like if you're like listening to anything these guys are saying and like accepting it like you are the dope like you're just like this bumbling jack lemon but then like later in the film as he becomes more and more desperate and he is just so much more willing to give himself up for so much of this like let's say there's an example where he hears of a promising lead and he just is so desperately saying like can you can you just bring me to them and they say like oh no there's just no situation where this will work he says like you can blindfold me you can plug my ears like you know whatever it will take like i will submit to it because like just the idea of any anything he could possibly do because he feels so powerless right like he is like submitting to the will of this new environment that he's been placed in it's basically like this film is is like a show case for through his character like the five stages of grief you know there's there's denial from the get-go of him being like that's not what happened come on like we're americans you can't just do this kind of thing there's bargaining depression anger and ultimately like acceptance and he goes Mm -hmm. in his journey like through each one of those stages and i think again like so Um, so impressively in his performance. And I think like the other thing I want to remark on in terms of the visual style is, and this, and I think this will lead us maybe into a a more like discussion of the potentially problematic aspect of the film. But like, to me, there's a, there's like this weird thing going on where the film is centering this in, you know, very specific drama of Ed and Beth and like everything else is kind of secondary, but everything that's secondary is so important to like the journey that they're going on, right? And so like visually what the film does is is quite amazing, which is like foregrounding these characters and their like detective plot with these sort of coup tableaus. And I mean, it is relentless and it is extremely creative and well-staged and absolutely fucking horrifying constantly. As they're moving from consulate to embassy to lunch to to interview, there are bodies on the street, there's blood on the sidewalk, there's tanks in the background, there's gunshots off screen, there's planes off screen. I mean, it is a constant barrage, sometimes very in your face and sometimes in the background, but it is a constant barrage of terror that's going on. But I did want to ask you guys, like, like any sort of investigation plot, as Andy pointed out, it's more about the searchers. And so do you think that as a film, you lose something of the, the truth of the coup? Like, is it, I don't know. I mean, I feel, I feel torn on like, I I hear what you're saying. I do, I do. I I think that there's, um, as arbitrary as it sounds, I think the film like hits a wall probably halfway through or at least two-thirds of the way through. And I think it has something to do with some of that context missing 
from the, just like the situation in general because I I agree that the the coup itself visually and sonically is is extremely evocative. Yeah, the sound design in this movie is is a fucking it's masterpiece. Crazy. Like yeah. alone, it's know? amazing, and I think that it creates this like it's a weird thing to say, but it created this um, like a calm tension for me. Like I felt like I was always on edge and panicking, but it all is as we've described, you know, so matter of fact and like kind of casually presented like just people stepping over bodies and all this terror happening all around us but it's very evenly lit it's not hyper stylized and yet it does feel sort of like precise and controlled but i do agree that then as the film goes on as we're still searching for him i did feel like at times i did want a bit more in order to feel the weight of the entire situation i I felt like i was getting it emotionally throughout the first half of the film, but it was starting to like dampen as it, as it went on or at least be drained of that. I think from my perspective, like to your point, Marsh, um, something that did um, really like hit me again this time around was at a certain point, I'm sitting there going like, this is just one fucking guy. And yes, there are like, they go into like fucking there room. Piles. And yeah, just piles of fucking people who also had you know, fathers and wives and brothers and friends and people who cared about them. And so I think for me, yeah, like if there is, you know, for on a certain level, like, you know, I don't know, even like an ethical question of like, how much does this search for this one guy actually matter in the, in the face of all of this, you know, surrounded by all this, you know, yeah, again, it's like, it could drift into a territory where like, yeah, look at the, Americans are able to pull strings and like he is sort of privileged. So he is able to just like storm into the, the ambassador's office and be like, put resources into this and like, you know, pull strings and use his wealth to, to get him access to places that the average Chilean like wouldn't, you know, and people still to this day who don't know what happened to still, you know, to this day that, that they don't, you know, there's still searches going on today in these areas for the remains of like loved ones. But I do think that Costa Gavras at times points to that, you know, to, to sort of like make us also I mean, go, it's pretty easy to add up, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't think he's like downplaying the, you know, everything else. Right. It's just such an intense focus on the Charlie saga. Yes. That, yeah. I mean, there's the scene where, you know, they are finally granted access to the stadium, which has been like the, the like processing center slash like execution grounds for like so many of the people in the city. And like, they go in there and like, they're just like handed a microphone, you know, like, all right, speak and uh, talk through the, the PA and see if you can find Charlie. And they are, they, they're having this like heartfelt, like Charlie, Charlie, are you out there? We love you, Charlie. And like, <laughs> and then finally, like some guy comes running down. I love that scene. And and he just like throws it in their fucking face. Like, my father cannot come here. But how about some ice cream with my dinner, Coronel Espinosa? If you do sit there for a second and go like, it's all about Charlie and Charlie matters. You do then get some of those moments of like piles of bodies and people stacked up everywhere that you kind of are, are like, oh, again, this is a much bigger horror than just one person being missed. And I do want to comment, Ryan, on your calm tension comment, because I think there's something extremely insightful about what you said about how this film feels. And I think it's Costa Gavras' attempt at like showing you this neoliberal terror where 
the everyday, the corporate, the capital is flowing, but so is the military and the violence, right? And this is shown Mm -hmm. to us very early on in one of my favorite moments in the movie. This is in the opening when Charlie and his friend Terry, who they were at the beach with when they ran, you know, whatever, (laughs) sort of learned too much about the coup before the film starts, but they're trying to make their way home as the film opens and they're forced to stay in this hotel overnight uh, because of the curfew. No phones are working. They can't go anywhere. So they're just in this hotel And Charlie is looking out the window and there's a black tie, like tuxedo Mm -hmm. event across the street where all the extremely wealthy are having a party and they're singing My Ding-A-Ling. My (laughs) Ding-A-Ling. Which, this is, like, kind of embarrassing, I guess. I didn't realize that was a real song. Like, there's that great Simpsons gag where, during the talent show, he sings My Ding-A-Ling, and then Principal Skinner, like, runs and grabs the boy and takes him out of there. So hearing it in this context and just being like, oh, my God, this is a real song, it just made me laugh. And it's so grotesque. Yeah, it's just this, like, lavish little party that we're seeing through the windows. Everyone's singing about their ding-a-lings as a coup is occurring outside. Yeah, and then the tanks roll by, and all the soldiers are saluting the rich people who are, like, waving down to the soldiers. And you go, like, this is Costa Gavra showing us, like, this marriage between, you know, the military and corporations that was the 1973 coup. And what's later brought up by the the Ford Foundation guy who says there's 3,000 companies, you American corporations in in this country. Like, we're looking out for their interests, right? And obviously, you know, that's ultimately what it's all about. This, This banality and this, like, again, this, like, well, commerce is open. Yeah, you can just be rounding people up and shooting them in the stadium as long as, you know, Ford is open, as long as this factory is open, as long as that store is open. And then throughout, there's like this business etiquette that Jack Lemon has to deal with whenever he's meeting with officials. And, you know, Andy, you talking about this, this privilege that he experiences. It's funny imagining like any Chilean citizen bursting into an ambassador's office and asking about their missing family member. And then the idea of those ambassadors being like, why don't you take a seat? Like, oh, please. Thanks for coming. Sit down. There's like five scenes of them asking Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek to sit down. And Jack almost always does. It's by the end when he stops sitting down. (laughs) Uh, But throughout, Sissy Spacek refuses to sit down. Um, And I think that that's like another little interesting signifier in terms of once he's starting to get a little more on her wavelength or at least feel that frustration. But yeah, I guess relating back to that, yeah, everything's going operating the cor- the corporations are are flowing right it's all it's all still going there is like that etiquette amongst there's no the ambassadors aren't feeling that urgency that Jack Lemon and Sissy Spacek or any of the citizens of the country are feeling. They're like, well, let's just make sure all our interests are here handled as like diplomatically and tactfully as they can be. Yeah. And that's and that's, you know, like the way you put that too and like how Jack Lemon's um, you know, persona changes throughout those 
meetings, those sit downs, you know, because at, at the very beginning, it's like when he, when he asks somebody to do something, you know, like, can you, can you help me with this? And it's always sort of like, you know what, we're going to look into that. Absolutely. And maybe we, mm-hmm. we can get your response in a couple of days. And then, you know, it's like he turns and looks at Sissy Spacek, like, see, stuff's happening. We're going to get this right. done, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you know, he's very much like that. Like, we had the sit down. I, I, you know, shook the guy's hand. You know, we, I wore a suit. We were respectful to one another. You know, we were very pleasant and, and professional. So that, that courtesy is going to be repaid. And it's like, you know, it's, it's Sissy Spacek who at first is just so fucking like rude to them. Yeah. Well, she's been doing <laughs> like, this for two weeks. He yeah. calls her out for it. Cause he says, he's like, how dare, like, how, how could you be so rude to all of those men? Like, why yes. are you acting this way? And she's like, I've just been dealing with this. Right. And uh, dealing with them, including, uh, fucking, what's his name? Ray tower. Yes. The sex pest. <laughs> yes. Right? So oh my it's God, like, and yeah. he's sitting in the same like meeting with him and she has to sit in the same meeting with him. You know, there's this great like moment where she like reveals like, uh, yeah. And then like after Charlie was disappeared and we were trying to find him, they have this other guy, Ray tower. Uh, I forget what was his specific. I think he's like role? a, like a Colonel. He's like a, he's like an, or a military advisor yes, or something a, like, yeah. And that's like, yeah, the show nebulous. All, yeah, they're all lying about what their titles are. Right. Too. Exactly. I just, I just kept saying like state department. Cause like the state yeah. department is just, yeah, this awful nebulous fucking hellhole full of these guys. And, and like, yeah, they, they go to a hotel and he's kind of like, Hey, you should stay with me for the night or whatever and he just like barges into sissy spacex hotel room where she's taking a bath and is basically like oh now you should fuck me because i helped you or whatever he also in that flashback uh he he yells at at beth and he says you gotta learn to stay ahead of the power curve kid you know what i mean leave me alone carrie it's me it's an old aircraft carrier sir See, if a pilot gets ahead of the power curve and something happens, then he can just always pull up in the way. But if he falls behind the power curve and something happens, then just adios, pal. You gotta learn to stay ahead of the power curve, kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Which, again, you know, it's a didactic moment, but we, we get a sense of what these guys are all about. I mean, throughout the film, we're meeting these, yeah, these State Department goons, guys who introduce themselves as economic advisor uh, and other sort of sinister, nebulous terms, right? But Jack Lemon, like, it, it takes a while for him to start to, yeah, also see through that, you know, to see through those titles and to just start trying to break that veneer of professionalism. Like, he really does start to break it down. And as you said, Ryan, like, through, like, an increasing desperation as he realizes that, like, they are also giving me the runaround, you know, and he starts to get a sense of the games that they're playing with him. Because initially, when he's like presented with the idea that his son could be this left-wing radical, his his answer to that is like, "My son, like he's he's too wishy-washy to be a radical. Like mm-hmm. he 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 doesn't commit to or believe in anything." Um, and then later in the film when the government officials are trying to reframe the narrative saying like, well, you know, we're really looking for him, but we're starting to think that like maybe his disappearance could even just be a stunt. You know, he, we think he may have been captured by leftists at his own command because he's been working with them. Yeah. The false false flag, flag, the false flag suggestion is when, you know, they're coming out, come running out of excuses. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's even a really funny moment early on when like Beth and Ed are on totally different wavelengths 
and they're meeting with like the consul and the ambassador and Ray Tower and they give they give Beth an excuse they've already given her and they like they're already started to repeat these complete lies. Right. They're like, well, he's been trans. He's been writing for these, you know, periodicals. He's left wing periodicals. And she's like, well, she's been translating, but like left wing as far as the New York Post is concerned. Is that a radical rag? You know, (laughs) there's a lot of great lines. There are. It's a really punchy script. I actually read that so Gavras co-wrote it with another guy but the the dialogue he's like the other guy wrote all the the dialogue in English and said that Beth and Ed sounded exactly the same so they had to hire another novelist to write Ed so like one novelist wrote Ed's dialogue and he's not credited on the film because the writers guild wouldn't have it wow that makes sense because so many, yeah, so many of of his lines in the film are like incredibly inspired. I, I, the one that really stuck up for me was um, when they're talking about that translation work that he had done and working for like sixteen hours a day, and he's like, "Well, how much was he getting paid for that?" And they mentioned like all oh, the gratitude and respect. And he says, you, you, you don't get many hot dogs with a little gratitude and respect. And I'm like, what a line. Here we go. You know? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he really was in the film for me, rewatching it again. It, it was like, it was so sad watching him like dodder through this coup. And like you said, Marsh, like constantly like flinching at the sound of like every like burst of automatic fire you know and and meanwhile everyone else is just kind of like not reacting at all and he's just this like jumpy like little rabbit um but also like as he progressed through the film like how he aged like when he first storms his way down there yes i mean he's clearly like a middle-aged dude but he's you know he's 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 walking and taking action and moving around and like i noticed as the film progressed like more and more he starts to get like led by Sissy Spacek, you know, and he starts to stoop and slump and his shoulders sag. And, and eventually it's like Sissy Spacek, like, like holding him by the arm and like helping him shuffle through the coup. And it's like, he's like aging, like so much as the film went on. And again, I, you know, I think that's a, 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 a huge like testament to like Jack Lemon, like kind of getting it. And again, getting the physicality of that role because yeah, by the end, this is what happens to a, to an American man who loses confidence in his government. Yes. You know, he withers away. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He does. Yeah. 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 Uh, I do, I do love to, of course, the cherry on the top of this entire movie is, you know, uh, of course, ultimately, uh, it's revealed, oh, yeah, they killed him. Uh, <laughs> he, three days after he, quote unquote, went missing, he's in the stadium, you know, uh, and they're like, what? Oh, OK. And actually, this is, of course, told to him by a guy that works at the Ford Foundation on the sly. Not anyone in the American government was so helpful to tell uh, him what they knew all along, which is that three days after the coup he was executed in the stadium and so they make arrangements to uh send the body home and in again this sort of like extremely uh cynical fuck you neoliberalism moment uh the consul i believe uh, says that 
Well, there's going to be a there's going to be a fee, a shipping, uh, fee. a shipping fee to send the body back nine hundred thirty one dollars and fourteen cents. And here we go, fees, the beginning of fees, you know. Yeah, um, it is. It is such a fucking like gut punch. I mean, already when you've been really kind of like numbed, it's just like a, a punch that doesn't even hurt, but it's just like one more out the fucking door, yeah, you know? Just now total be, indignity, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like after all that, they're not even going to like cover <laughs> the cost of shipping your fucking son's corpse back home. And then two, Marsh, you know, the, the like the, the dusting of a little cocoa powder on top of the cherry on the Sunday. Uh, they promised it would only take a few days, and in actuality, it took several months. Yeah. So that there could be no autopsy that would be in any way, shape, or form like meaningful. You know, they basically just let that that body rot right. in a box before sending it home. You know, on their dime. <laughs> yeah. Know, on Jack Lemmon's dime. Absolutely. And yeah, there's there's one thing I wanted to share to you that I uh, that I read that I found was really interesting, especially about in the context of like missing and missing people and and just things that are missing, right? And I, I came across this essay that's in uh, a, a, the films of Costa Gavras like compilation, you know, uh, and it's called "What's Missing from Missing" uh, by Thomas Leach, and and one. Thing that he says in this essay is although Costa Gavras never uses the term in his interviews, conversion is his great subject. Not because his films all dramatize conversions, but because they are invitations to a conversion that is never shown. Conversion is a subject that is both painstakingly documented in Missing and pointedly omitted from the film's conclusion because the film depends for its effect on converting the audience in ways that can only be modeled, implied, and invited, rather than directly represented. Missing's call to conversion is an action that can be completed only by audiences who accept the call. That's very well put. And again, why I said in the beginning, like, you know, to an extent, I, I kind of consider Missing like a bit of a failure in that regard, <laughs> because America in no way, shape or form has been converted. I mean, if fucking Jack Lemon couldn't do it, you know, like, yeah. who the hell can? <laughs> yeah, sure. and a, a, couple, uh, a couple other indignities that I ought to mention is that uh, in, a, in an unprecedented move, uh, two or three days before this film's release, the State Department put out a three-page statement on the film, which they don't do in never did uh, and basically said you know it's all lies and and accused it of of being all fake or whatever of course it's all true but there was also an op-ed by uh, Alexander Haig against the film and the New York Times ran complete interference for uh, you know the State Department accusing the film of of making things up and of course sitting here from 2021 obviously we know uh the truth about uh, <laughs> Charlie Horman, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's just fascinating to see, look back at some some of the documents and see the, the US media machine in full spin and freaking out. I mean, Costa Gavras in an interview said, hey, if the State Department's releasing a statement before this film's coming out, like, they're scared. They're panicking. Right. Like, that's a coward's move. Like, yeah. if they were confident at all, they wouldn't do that. 
but uh, nevertheless uh, they did and later the film got pulled from the home video market because of uh, ongoing lawsuits the guy who Ray Tower is based on of course was was part of that Anyway, so one similarity I found between these films is that they're both about outsiders mm -hmm. in their uh, in their quests, right? So both of the searchers in these films are, yeah, sort of like coming to strange lands. And I think I found that to be like the strongest connection, this sort of like disorientation that comes with, yeah, going to another country or going to Summerfield or whatever, you know, another part of Australia. You mm -hmm. know, I do think it's kind of fascinating that there, it's kind of like Summerfield is like the inverse of Wake and Fright because like Wake and Fright starts with a teacher leaving and this starts with a teacher coming. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah, I also think that one of the interesting things about the way both of these films interact with each other is there is that similarity there of outsiders, but there's also a key difference in the sense that Missing, the 1982 film, has a figure that's missing amidst all of these people. There are just bodies everywhere. It's a search through a city where there is so much going on, and it seems like this futile search because it's just like, how could you ever find one person amongst all of this? And then in Summerfield, there's that Australian quality of like a desolate landscape and absence. trying to find someone in absence and trying to find someone amidst negative space, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think like th that, and then just returning to the small town as opposed to the big city here, we have someone searching for, through all these mysteries and even amongst the small town, everyone refuses that there is a mystery. Uh -huh. And another connection I would also say is that uh, both uh, run up against the the machine of bureaucracy because there's this great moment in Summerfield early on when he's you know he's trying to do the good thing as a citizen and like you know contact the police you know and and investigate you know this missing persons and the cop doesn't seem concerned at all about you know Mr. Flynn's potential disappearance but is very very upset by his improperly registered automobile and takes him to task for it, you know, and like cites him and writes him up, you know? Yeah. It was, it was very triggering, uh, like for Chicago guys like us in the sense that it's like the Chicago city sticker, how ruthless the city can be. Uh, oh, we know all yeah. about, we know all about neoliberalism and fees and tickets in yeah. this town. Yeah. I assure you. Cause when he goes to grab the sticker out of his glove compartment, it's like that, that registration sticker that they had on those, their cars, in Australia, you know, I don't know entirely how it works, but it's similar. I'm assuming like a license plate <laughs> sticker here. But the um, it looked like it looked just like you know, like with the date, it looked like a Chicago City sticker, and I was like, oh man, yeah, I know how that feels, buddy. I know, dude, I love it because the cop, you know, when he's trying to talk to him again about like this guy going, the cop says to him, "It's not a crime, you know, to disappear." Which is more than you can say for an improperly registered vehicle. <laughs> <You know? Yep. laughs> it, it sums it up so well. I, I mean, love it. The film does, for me, have a sort of, at times, kind of Kafka-esque 
quality to it, you know, in that, you know, again, like in, in some of Kafka's works, uh, a character searching for something or looking for something or trying to get somewhere or trying to get something fucking signed and, and just running into all these dead ends and not just dead ends, but, you know, reversals and switches and red herrings and people being like, no, you, you don't have the proper documentation. You got to go all the way back. You know? and so right. it, it, it does kind of have that. And again, like this question that eventually starts to emerge, like, is there even a missing fucking person? And a movie I think like just plays with that so well. I think it's really mm-hmm. the most compelling thread, you know, for me of the film. Yeah. And I also think that it has an extremely strong sense of place uh, as we're talking about things these films have in common uh, in the way that they evoke that. And there is like, in t- you're talking about this Kafka quality. There is like a, a distinctly like Australian sun-baked Kafka quality to it. Oh my right? God, dude, speak right like at the beginning, even when uh, Robinson shows up at the like the, his first day of school, the students there fake hang a kid in front of them. <laughs> I know, <laughs> Yeah, the mock execution, that was truly shocking. That's some real, like, Australian gallows humor shit. Like, those kids thought it was hilarious that they were hanging this kid in front of the new teacher. Um, But again, I do want to, you know, just as I compared uh, missing sort of, like, fill in the picture of a person to Citizen Kane, Summerfield also takes a page out of the Citizen Kane playbook because... Over the pier at the gate to Summerfield, the island where the abbots live, there's a there's a fence with a sign that says no trespassing. And we see that very early on in the film, and it is a dead giveaway to any cane heads out there that that means we're going to maybe be trespassing a little bit in this little island and, and with these people. And I love the imagery that the film opens with because we get... A POV or sort of like kind of like Michael Mann hood shot of the car Robinson is driving yeah. and he's and he's driving a Jaguar mm-hmm. and it's like a Jaguar has come you know has come to town or ha- is like invading <laughs> sure. this peaceful yeah. landscape like it was so prominent for me I'm like they keep cutting to the Jaguar on the hood and I was thinking like okay this is like you know here comes a different animal into a different ecosystem well right? and they yeah. do make the point uh later on in the film like there is there is this like discussion of birds intensely and, yeah and birds and then cats cats who hunt birds and so I, in that moment I was really thinking about him as like he is to these people he is this sort of like this prowling cat that that sort of emerges and he's climbing on everything and he's getting into everything and like what are the where are the birds and you know keep the birds away from the cat you know like so Marsh to your point I was really like that's that I didn't even like draw that until you pointed out the the jaguar hood ornament and it's like oh yeah he's he is this like prowling cat that's getting into things it shouldn't perhaps there is this really weird dynamic between our hero, you know, the the teacher Simon Robinson and um, one of his students 
Sally, and Sally is the one who talks the most about the previous instructor throughout the initial chunks of the film, where she references the fact, like, oh, he was such a wonderful drawer. Like, do you draw Mr. Robinson? He's like, oh, well, clearly not as well as, as him, as he's referencing drawings of animals on the on the chalkboard. And she says, well, he he plays guitar and and, and sings songs too. Do, do you do that? And he's like, oh, you know, not really. But so she's she is constantly reminding him of the absence of the quote-unquote missing instructor and then her next step is to invite him over to like their island like you should come visit us on Summerfield he has this own mystery in his head about you know where's this missing teacher that and no one seems to be like caring about this at all and then now there's this mysterious quality in the film of like why is this little girl bringing him into her world that then will it'll be like it's like all these other mysteries are suddenly appearing it's like a nesting doll of mysteries that's right well an invitation to dinner isn't an invitation to uh investigate the uh (laughs) the the dynamic of your family you know which i would say (laughs) he he kind of inserts himself into it well there's a there's a couple things going on there i think number one it's worth pointing out that as robinson discovers uh the missing flynn was quite close with the abbots and we should say of course sally lives on this island, Summerfield, with her mother, uh, Jenny, her mother Jenny, and her uncle David, who is is something is very strange about David. But it's this, yeah, it's this sort of like bizarre kind of family situation where it's like, yeah, and worth clarifying that it's her maternal uncle too. It's this, her mother's brother. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and so one thing that I wanted to ask you guys is, that, I mean, there's something into to what Ryan's saying, because certainly Sally is feeling this absence, and also uh, she appears to be without a father, right? So it's like, where's Flynn? You know, he used to come over all the time. But when Robinson hits her on her bike, to me, it seemed staged. It seemed like, she did that on purpose. I thought so too. She. It is a weird moment because she is, and it's it's hard to say exactly because the moment comes off as a bit stilted, so it's hard to tell whether this was her own sort of performance and act or if it was just sort of like a little bit of clumsy filmmaking. But she is coming after him because she is repeating that opening line of the film suggesting that you've come the wrong way. She's on her bike and he hits her with his car. Uh, it's after he like runs the windshield wipers and it seems like a bunch of mud is just like sprayed all over his windshield windshield and that's when he you know purportedly doesn't see her and he hits her but he gets out of the car and he goes to her and she says you've come the wrong way she like repeats it again and it does feel like arranged right like she's splayed it on the ground as if like this was all a part of the plan yeah if it's not intentional it feels like cosmic in a way that's not just like random or whatever but at that point yeah i mean he he starts to become a friend of the family mm-hmm. i guess you could say um as you know sally is recovering from her broken leg um whether or not it was a false flag or <laughs> not a false less of wrong wrong term but um but yeah so then th- this is when all these other like little details start to arise because with her broken leg her reintegration into the school is extremely 
slow going. Yeah. Her her mother isn't willing to bring her back to the classroom for an extended period of time. So that's that's another way he gets involved with this family as he offers like, well, why don't I come by, you know, once or twice a week and I can provide some schooling for her. And that's when he starts to learn all these other things about her and talking with other members of the town as there's this confusion over Sally's origin even. She, it was Jenny, like, was abroad for 10 years and she came back and she had Sally with her her um and then we later find out that sally has this rare blood disease they had a nasty fright with her you know when she was about a year old thalassemia major it's a blood disease it used to be called mediterranean anemia thalassemia literally translated means salt water in the blood <laughs> There is that that note that he finds on the back of the the photograph that says salt water in the blood. Right. The introduction of the blood disease is confusing because it is mentioned that it is hereditary, but then there's also the sense that it may be related as to why the mother is so protective and doesn't want her daughter to go back to school so quickly. So again, it's just this like web of mystery of like these odd little details that arise. You know, that is a question I have for both of you is the how you read his own quest and his own need to feel like he had to search for this missing instructor that no one else in the town seems to be concerned about. I mean, I guess there's just this natural curiosity, but what is it specifically that has like turned him into the searcher that you read while watching? Well, to me, it's like, it's like blow up, you know, like you just are creating this meaning, you know? And like, he's just like, Mm -hmm. I, I think the film does a really good job of like, not yeah, not getting bogged down in motivation and as a film, just sort yeah. of constructing this mystery of objects and like landscapes. And it's sort of, yeah, like like Hemmings and Blow Up being like, did I, did, did I see something? Like, am I going crazy? I, and then he just becomes obsessed with it. Like, same here, just like this notion is put into his head. And for whatever reason, right? I don't know why, but he just can't let it go. And every new thing he discovers, like, has more meaning to him. And that's like one of the great things about the film is that like his quest turns out to be completely misplaced. But in the process of questing, he uncovers other truths, right? right? Hidden truths, you know? So I don't know. Like to me, the film does a really good job of just showing you like how visually you just become like entranced by these things. Cause in the film, there's a mm-hmm. lot of uh, photo- photographs and, and photography is kind of a central theme along with like animals and, and drawings of animals and, and trees and pelicans, a lot of animal stuff in this movie. But I feel like the, the film is showing us how he's obsessed, you know, yeah. like, mm-hmm. like I can't describe it other than like the way the film feels is how he feels and it's mm-hmm. feel, and it feels like you're like drawn to it, you know. Well, we you know we've we've touched on this. I feel now like several times before, and I I've said you know we've we've all kind of discussed this and kicked this idea around. But you know, again, to me, uh, you know, philosophically speaking, the investigation film, uh, the the murder mystery, the mystery, you know, all that stuff. These are also read 
as searches for meaning in general, you know, mm-hmm. solving a crime is trying to find them and more often than not, like the meaning behind something. And it's, it's hard to solve a crime if you don't have motive, right? So you search for motive and you search for the, the meaning of something and, and proving something and, and more often than not, like proving something to yourself. So again, for me in, in looking at also missing persons cases, I sort of brought this idea up at the beginning. It's, it's often a search for ourselves or the searcher searching for themselves, right? And, and, and looking at it in, in that sense. And so I think for him in this film, I, I kind of read it as, you know, he is searching for himself. You know, he's this guy, this, this playboy teacher, whatever. And he's been now stationed out in the middle of nowhere and he's well to do, but you know, we don't know anything really about his family. And, you know, he seems kind of like a lonely guy, you know, like he doesn't really Mm -hmm. have friends. He's just like now out here. And I think he looks at Flynn and, you know, again, kind of like sees himself. Yes. Yeah, well, this, if this is me, then what happened to him? Where did he go? Right. Why is, where did I go? True. You know, it could have, it, it, you know, this is me. Like, where would I disappear to? What, or what potentially could happen to me out here? Like, what do I know about these people? And like you said, Marsh, you know, the film does a good job, I think, of planting a lot of like red herrings for him and, and for the audience of us being like, there's something going on here. And, and he, him getting kind of obsessed with that. And I think it's also, you know, implied that, you know, there's a class kind of thing. He is wealthier. He's posh. Yeah, he's posh, you know, and, and he's out here in the country and there's there's tension in the beginning between him and and some of the the town's folk. And and there is this sense of like Oh, now here's the guy from the city come to the provinces to educate everyone, you know, to show us how to live, to raise our children properly. And so I think there is that tension that is meant to seem to him and to us like they're all in on it, you know, they're all in on it. And really they're just like, who's this fucking asshole driving up here in a Jaguar? (laughs) There's only one of them that should have been suspicious and that's Jim because Jim's wife uh, who works at the inn, Betty, has a little fling with uh, Robinson at the hotel, Mm -hmm. but we can deal with that later. It is funny though, the film really does try to convince you that it is this conspiracy, that it is trying to make you think that everyone is in on it. You know, again, also with the wife, you know, there's, there's, again, I I think searching for himself and seeing Flynn and and there's comparisons, direct comparisons to him and Flynn. He's being measured. Oh, I'm, he's a better, can you play guitar? No, not, not, no, I can't. Damn, Flynn, he's got me. He can play tennis though. He can play tennis a little bit. That's true, you know, but it's like, again, with, you know, the woman, the, the innkeeper's wife just suddenly entering his room and seducing him, let's be honest. I also took that as... And she did the same to Flynn, you know, like, yeah, again, this like doubling that is kind of happening to him, whether, you know, implicitly or explicitly of, of he's just treading in this guy's footsteps. He's going where he went. He's experiencing what he experienced here. That's why, you know, for me, when the film started, you know, the beginning of the film, like I was also getting, you know, like sort of like Wicker Man vibes, you know, yep. this like it, the whole town's in on it and, and they do this. They keep inviting these posh guys out here to take this position to teach and they, <laughs> and they do this elaborate setup and then eventually for fucking sport or entertainment because there's nothing else to do yeah, out in the middle of nowhere. The <laughs> yeah, right or whatever. But I think that's what's smart about the movie because it's trying to lead us down that path. 
path. It's trying to get us as worked up as he is. Like in the case of Blow Up as well, where we're also now convinced we saw something, you know? And then ultimately, like, maybe not. And like his predecessor, he gets drawn into the web of the Abbots. And it's explained to our guy that Summerfield was settled 150 years ago by the great-great-grandfather of Jenny and David, who, of course, are living there now. And... Their great-great-grandfather was a sea captain who saw the island from his ship and sort of claimed it as his own, you know. So again, too, to the uh, sort of class uh, regional divide going on, yeah, here's the here's the posh city guy, and all of a sudden he's like caught in this bizarre like web of this like seafaring family that lives in a fenced-in island, right? Uh, This sort of, like, you know, secret garden or secret world that they're living in, right? And especially with their refusal to let Sally come back to school with her broken leg, even though she clearly uh, is, like, dying to. And I think that's, you know, part of it, too, Ryan, to address even the earlier question of, like, what the hell is going on with all this? I mean, I think, like, Sally's got a few, like, cries for help you know i feel like Mm -hmm. living on that island with her mother and her uncle like it really does we don't see anything like too explicit uh although david does talk about how he just like killed a bunch of cats i didn't like that but you get an idea that like she is being sort of like locked up on this island and especially relating to like the blood disease. There's some sort of helicopter parenting going on. Right. This uh, sense that they're like protecting her from the world somehow. Yes. And he represents, yeah, this like outside world who's, you know, come to this island that, you know, belonged to a fucking pirate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it is just nice, like, just, like, this island and, like, I really can't stress this enough that, like, to me, the real star of it was just the location photography and this sense of, like, absence and confusion with this space, Um, even with these, like, obsession of objects that relate then to the space where, you know, at one point he finds, like, a hubcap in the water that he's positive is a hubcap that belongs to the missing person's car, Um, or there's the, the, uh, the relic of an old American ship that's on the property of the at Summerfield, right? And it's just I I don't know. My experience with Australian cinema isn't typically like a coastal cinema. Uh, it's more like a desolate, you know, like the outback or like whether it's in the cities. So there is something that like feels kind of Mediterranean about the film with all these like rocky coastal like sea areas um, and like people hanging out by them and him him like climbing over these rocks and like digging up his own mysteries throughout. For me, it it. It led me to also reflect on a lot of other Australian cinema I've seen. And, you know, in the beginning, Ryan, you, you kind of described this as a, as a sort of like Aussie hangout film. <laughs> and I was, of course, as Marsh also brought up, yes, thinking of things like Wake and Fright. And thinking of what an Aussie hangout film is. And it's often just like these weird rituals that people get measured against, you know, and it's about isolationism and it's about like loneliness. Like thinking of a lot of like Aussie films, you know, if you think of like American, you know, uh, Western films or whatever, you know, it's always about like settling something and civilizing something. And by comparison, like so many like 
Aussie films in 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 visually what what at times seems like similar terrain. You know, it's never about like civilizing anything. It's about sort of like stumbling upon pockets of people and things and and kind of always perpetually being an outsider there's a sort of like lack of community or these like these pockets of incestuous communities not to bury the lead but you know (laughs) that people like this guy just kind of come across you know because australia is just this big this big open barren landscape uh, that that you know has these has these strange pockets that are isolated, and I think so many Australian films again are are on a certain level about just like survival in, in these strange like cut off areas and places, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's this or the yeah. cars that ate Paris or or whatever, right? It's like people kind of coming in and being like. Oh my God, it's not like this in Perth, you know? <laughs> and, like, and it's always like them getting introduced to like this particular brand of Australian weirdness in these <laughs> in these strange secluded little like towns that you didn't know existed and you can't find on a map. So. Well, there's a yeah, there's a really uh, good conversation late in the later in the film when he's over at the Abbots and they're, they're talking about the lighthouse, you know, and it's like, That lighthouse has been flashing a warning for over a hundred years. And five generations of us have watched it. Summerfield has always been a kind of haven, I suppose. But even an island can't keep the world out forever. Exactly. And then so that it's not just yeah. about Summerfield, but it's also about Australia. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I was thinking on like the meta level, like also Australian cinema. I mean, this is 1977. This isn't long after the sort of like governmental aided resurgence of the film industry that began in the 1970s. So, yes, this, you know, film belongs in that crop of films like Hanging Rock, where like. Australian cinema is back, baby. Like, they're opening back up to the world. They're making films for uh, the global market or getting notoriety for making films that play well in the global market in this mm-hmm. period in time. So I was thinking about that as well, again, of like, yes, the, the closed-off island opening up or being invaded by a jaguar. Sure, yeah. And, like, when those things are, like, isolated and, like, you know, they become, like, incestuous and they, they, they have so much, like, inbreeding, like, how fragile those lines become. And then when they are, like, suddenly invaded how easily it is for those things to also shatter, how easy, easy it is for those things to to lose their specificity potentially, right? Or what made them special or unique. And and so if you're following that line, I, I think like that's ultimately like what happens here and also how mm-hmm. he's different from Flynn. He keeps pressing, pushing. He is at that fence and he is not taking no trespassing for an answer, you no. know? He climbs that fence. And, and, for these people, you know, David particularly, like how my reflection of him changed through the film, of him at first trying to kind of like subtly hint to this guy like, hey man, you had tea, you broke one of our china cups, all right? 
And you know it's a set, and if one of them goes, the rest are gonna go. You can't, yeah. you know, like there's no point in that. And all this stuff, and kind of like now you've had your fun. Like go back and bang the innkeeper's wife, and and go, you know, deal with that kid who almost got hanged this morning. Like get out of here, man. You know, David's sort of, you know, implicit suggestion that this guest is overstaying his welcome isn't followed, and this dude does keep pressing. Right, and I think we just got to say it. So when he, what he discovers in the end of the film is that Sally's mother, Jenny, is having an incestuous relationship with her brother David. Uh, and then it is presumably implied that that, that Sally is a, a child of incest because I get I will I will say you know throughout the film I, I knew that there was like an incident or a twist of sorts when I was doing just preliminary research on the film it's it's smattered all over the poster and the tagline like you will not believe the ending you will be shocked nah, I'll believe and while, it. <laughs> Yeah. And when I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Right. Like, I'm like, OK, there's going to be some sort of weird conspiracy. But I do, I do think that it was like a bit of a curveball to just end the film with like, oh, it's actually a story of incest. And like it is like, completely unrelated to the fact that this teacher has gone missing. He is not missing. He has just been away. Uh, so it is like this. The whole film is just this act of misdirection for a story of incest. And it's funny in hindsight, I think one of the only times that this big reveal is even telegraphed is in this discussion of the blood disease when the doctor is talking about like fortunately although sally has thalassemia major not minor it was in a mild form so its effects have been minimized still i suppose jenny feels guilty it's hereditary of course and you're like oh yeah oh oh," you know right (laughs) um you get the feeling but you know i do want to also again to like remark on this this film's texture and landscape uh simon robinson our our main character teacher you know he's he's a bit of an athlete as well uh he likes to run in extremely short shorts uh Mm -hmm. near the water with his shirt off he also goes fucking free solo uh at a particular point where he's you know sort of again emotionally just like so invested in this this search uh he just starts climbing these like tough rocks, yeah, you know, cliff. and he's just going off, you know, just being sporty, posh city teacher guy. Maybe the poster is referring referring to the other shocking thing that happens, right? Which is not the revelation of incest, but the film's climax, which uh, we should, I think, talk about in a little detail because it is a kind of very striking sequence. So, like, there's this whole big, you know, the film basically closes with this, like, big, long, extended sequence. And it's when uh, Robinson comes over for like a nice dinner at the Abbots and they eat in uh, right the fancy room. And this is like shown earlier in the film within this house at, at Summerfield. There's a room that's like been untouched for like 150 years. Uh, and so uh, they have this like candlelit, like amber glowing dinner in this space. And that's when, you know, Robinson leaves and comes back and sees 
Jenny and David doing the dirty through the window. Yeah. <laughs> we should emphasize absolutely just fucking. You know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And Jenny had kissed uh, Robinson on the way out as well when he left, like on the lips, like kind of a because they've obviously sorry if we didn't mention this, but implied he's also quite taken with Jenny Abbott. Yeah. Right. So and it's also implied that his predecessor Flynn may also yes, have been the, quite it is taken. such a doppelganger thing. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, the he, doubling. He is he is his pre- you know anyway. Uh, so he sees them doing it, and then there's this amazing little sequence where like the f- like he like go f- the floodlights are turned on, but then he like goes into the house and there's like this really crazy dolly shot that's showing the paintings of the Abbots, like dead relatives who look exactly like them. Uh, and then uh, shit gets really crazy and David uh, fucking pops off and kills Jenny and Sally and almost Robinson, but instead blows his own brains out yes. or, or whatever. Yeah. And it's, and it's also because, you know, Robinson was lingering and watching them fuck for a very long time. <laughs> yes. And this is when I turned on to him, when I ultimately was like, you fucking asshole. Like, I, I turned on Robinson because it's like, hey, man, you know, like, let him do their thing. You know, like, he pops in. He's kink shaming, essentially. You know, he looks at them <laughs> through the window and he just hangs there and he's watching him go and he watches them reach climax. I mean, they are having sex for a while and he's just standing there staring in the window. And then David looks up and is like, up, oh, the jig is up. Robinson's awesome. <laughs> like, That's right. Was he there the whole time? <laughs> and so that is what spurns him then to just sort of like end it all. Yeah, like, he ends once the, the family line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once they've been discovered, you know, he he does. And it's all his fucking guy's fault, you know? <laughs> because the kicker being that he then is like shattered by this experience and like gets back to the inn in his room. He finds Mr. Flynn fumbling around looking for his stuff. Yep. <laughs> you know, and he's like, yeah, he's oh, just hey. like, oh, I used to, I used to live here. I think I just like left some things behind. Like, don't yeah. mind me. <laughs> I think he just says like, I had to split or yeah. something. He goes, yeah, d- don't worry, don't walk the job back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, just like so casual as opposed to like the extreme tension and mystery that was like his presence, like or his absence was causing for 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 Simon. Life. Yeah. I could confidently say that um, at no point watching the film did I think that the reveal at the end would just be that it was an incestuous relationship. Um, it caught me off guard, even though my my guard was up as I was like searching for for a twist. Um, yeah. I've been spending like the past month, of course, it being October, watching a lot of horror movies, and I my mind kind of just went to the idea that because there was all this talk about salt water in the blood that there was going to be some sort of weird you know we were going to end up in the basement of the summerfield estate and that you know the former teacher was going to be strung up and he was going to be like forever offering blood transfusions to 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 poor little sally and i thought that that was going to be the twist that our guy was going to be responsible for keeping her alive because there was all this talk of disease um the incest wasn't what uh was on my radar for sure yeah no i i think like 
it has such a low key kind of vibe, like that I never really. Th- <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> I never thought it was heading in uh, a horror direction. I thought it was yeah. more like, yeah, uh, a, a shocking family secret film. But it it really does elevate it beyond that with, uh, you know, the massacre and then the irony at the end, uh, which is a really you know it's 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 a funny scene, but it also makes you rethink the entire film. And I think that's like a really nice quality for this kind of film to go like, okay, now you have to think about it again, you know, because ultimately, right. As we've said, it is this, you know, hazy misdirection. You're going the wrong way. You're trespassing. There's mud on your windshields, but you're still going, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, for me, reflecting again more broadly on the idea of like missing persons films, you know, missing persons as, as like subject matter. I think that, and and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not one for a, a false binary, but you know, on a certain level, I kind of feel like there's, there's sort of like two ways missing persons films go. Uh, a person is found, you know, an investigation is solved. There's, there's meaning that's discovered or, like the the person is never found and that's the point you know someone is then consumed in their obsessive investigation to the point where they just like entirely lose themselves you know uh and and they aren't rewarded for their for their fanaticism for their their search their investigation right interesting then that both of these films we have uh you know the the missing people in question are found but make no mistake, these films are downers, yeah. you know? And, like, yeah. the actual finding of, of these people brings no solace to the searcher, dead or alive, in, you know, the case of Missing, dead, alive, in the case of Summerfield, but he's alive in the worst way, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, it makes, yeah, his quest uh, turn into something else. Yeah. Couldn't leave well enough alone. Stuck his nose in everybody's fucking business, banged the innkeeper's wife. Yep. You know, busted up the sex party at the Abbott's house. I mean, led to the double homicide suicide. <laughs> I mean, this guy's kind of a dick. But yeah, so those are you know the the you know this is what we we found for you. What are some what are some other missing person cinema that you yourself have found that you you've enjoyed? I think one of my favorites is is definitely a, a an obvious obvious pick or an obvious choice for probably uh you know a lot of people and that's um the third man um by carol reed i i just i love that movie if you consider it a missing persons film which which yeah. i kind of do. where's harry line exactly is that not the plot yes exactly <laughs> um and another one i really love uh, hold on one second our audience members Andy is digging through his DVDs to, to try and find uh, the title of this film I know the title but I couldn't remember who made the film because it's people I've never really heard of but there's this Italian sort of proto giallo film that I that I stumbled into at a certain point because I do love giallo films and it's called The Possessed and it's directed by Luigi, it's co-directed by Luigi Bazzoni and Franco Rossellini, and I don't believe there's any 
uh, direct uh, <laughs> lineage there with uh, Roberto Rossellini, but um, it's a really, really impressive film, and it's a movie that like nobody's fucking seen, uh, and I, I really love it. It's like this writer going into this town and sort of, you know, searching for this woman, and it's it's just like unbelievable cinematography. It is just gorgeous black and white cinematography of this like haunted. Uh, Italian sort of like coastal town. It's very windswept and cold and and gray. And it's it's a film again about you know a mystery and a missing person who may or may not actually be missing at all. And that's really part of the the fun of it. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Ryan, it's your pick for the topic next week. So what'll it be? At the end of October every year. There is this big come down for me because uh, for the past seven years, I've been working at the Chicago International Film Festival. And there is sort of this like post festival depression that sort of sinks in as, you know, you spend a few weeks where it's it's everything is high energy and very intense and all the there's just so many moving pieces and you have to be on top of everything. And everyone like needs you. Everyone needs something from you all the time. And, and everything you like offer is very valuable. And then all of a sudden they don't need you anymore the event is over the festival is done and um it's something i've you know experienced and dealt with over the years and um but it is it's a it's a nice come down to it's 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 very relaxing this sort of like freeing feeling and um i you know i thought um like why don't we take a look at some films where people are putting on a production or putting on a show bring me films where whether it's theatrical or just a live event in general where people are putting together a production and seeing it through um so that's what i challenge you both to to bring next week it's a deal as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com thanks everyone don't you see You have all the connections. I'm a middle-aged businessman from New York City. I don't speak one word of Spanish. Here I am. My son may have been shot. Maybe he was tortured. Maybe he was, oh, Lord, beaten so badly that they're keeping him until he's well enough to be released. I don't know. I don't care. I'm not going to make a stink. I'm not going to go to the newspapers. You make out any kind of a release form, I will sign it. I will absolve anyone, everyone, of everything. I just want my boy back. 